Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 95. Next Sunday, we are going to jump back into the Gospel of John. We're going to pick up where we left off at the end of chapter 3, but it is my privilege today to preach the final message in our five-week series uh, of Summer in the Psalms. We've been uh, setting aside the month of July to think together about uh, what God has spoken to us about Himself and about our worship of Him in the Psalms. And I just want to say, before we get to the text today, isn't it a wonderful thing that God gave us a songbook? When God decided that He was going to reveal Himself and disclose himself to a people, he decided not only to give didactic instruction, he decided to not only narrate events, but he gave us a songbook to shape and form our hearts and our worship and our understanding of him. And I think that's very wise. I mean, far be it for me to say that God is wise, but he is. Uh, That's a wonderful thing because music and song has a way of working in our hearts in a way like nothing else can. Nothing can move your emotions quite like a song that, that takes a truth and marries it with emotion. I mean, who hasn't had that experience of listening to country music while they're driving down the road, and you just break down in tears? Have you guys experienced that? No? Me neither. No, it's never happened. Uh, Song has a way of, of, of drilling series of words down into our hearts where we'll never, ever forget them. Just this past week, Katie and I went over uh, to help some friends paint their house. And as we were getting ready to get started, uh, painting some rooms, getting ready for, uh, for a baby that's coming, and uh, the host, the master of the house, asked me if it would be okay with me if he broke out his 90s playlist while we painted. And I said, not only is that okay with me, I demand that you do it. <laughs> and he did, and it was glorious. And here's the thing I learned. I know every Oasis and Foo Fighter and every song from the 90s that there is, I have the whole thing memorized. Like, it's crazy. I'm singing along. I feel bad for anyone who didn't come of age with the great 90s music like I did. You really missed out. But here's the thing. I actually said to Katie at one point, I'm singing all of these songs word for word. What important information am I not able to remember? Because this is taking up all of that RAM in my brain. I don't know. You should probably pray for me about that. The point is, Jesus sang the Psalms. God gave us a song book to teach us about himself and to form and shape our worship as a people. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Well, this morning we're going to give our attention to Psalm 95. So I invite you, if you're able and willing, take your Bibles with you and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 95. We're going to read all 11 verses together. Hear the Word of the Lord. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, 
as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This then is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, inspired word. Surely the grass withers and the flower falls, but not the word of God. No, the word of God remains forever. And may he write its truth upon our hearts. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. This week in New Jersey, a man was arrested for stealing a heavy-duty truck from a construction site. And the detectives who caught him uh, reported that they were able to uh, build a case and figure out who stole the truck by, by reviewing the video and audio surveillance feed from inside the truck. And in viewing this audio and video, it revealed that the suspect was doing something as he was stealing the truck. He kept audibly referring to someone named Jeff. And so they were left to ponder, these detectives were, they had to do some detectiving. Is Jeff some sort of unseen accomplice? Is Jeff somebody he was talking to on the Bluetooth? Was Jeff some kind of imaginary friend? Or was Jeff actually the first name of the suspect? And that's what they found out. He was saying his own name over and over again as he was stealing the truck. He was referring to himself in the third person, okay? Which you just don't do, okay? You just don't do that. And here's the thing. My mom taught me when I was a little kid, you got to be a good vicarious learner. That means when you see someone doing something dumb, you should learn from that. And there's two dumb things we can learn from our buddy Jeff. First, don't steal trucks, okay? And at least if you're going to steal one, don't steal one that has like a video and audio feed of everything that's happening in the truck. And second, never refer to yourself in the third person, okay? Just don't do it. It's a bad idea. In this text today, God wants to shape and form our worship, and he wants to do that in a traditional way by instructing us, but he also wants us to be wise to learn the lesson vicariously through Israel and their rebellion against God. He wants to speak to us to form our worship. This is a text that the church has looked to throughout history as a formative and foundational text for understanding what God requires of us and wants from us in worship. So here's where we're going to go today. This is what God desires of us in worship. He wants us to come. He wants us to sing. He wants us to know. He wants us to treasure. And he wants us to do those things today. Come, sing, know, and treasure today. That's where we're going. So we're just going to make our way through this psalm And see what it says to us. The first thing God wants us to do in this text is to come. Come into his presence. We see this in verses 1 and 2. This psalm opens with these words, O come. And throughout history, the church has has called this the venite. That's the Latin Latin phrase that, that encapsulates that command. O come. This is the great call to worship text of the Psalms. This is very clearly saying to all of God's people, to the covenant community, stop what you're doing. Leave your work behind, unplug, set aside everything that would hinder you, and come into the presence of God. Let us come into his presence with singing. And I want, I want, you, to, I want you to see this. We move so quickly past words like that. 
But we need to understand all the meaning and all the significance that's packed in to this invitation from God to come to him. We should marvel at this. We should hear, as New Testament Christians, the grace of the gospel in this invitation to come. And the reason why is when we think back to the Garden of Eden, God made this beautiful creation, this beautiful fellowship for our first parents to enjoy, and they rebelled against him and they sinned. And what did God do in response to that? He cursed the man and the woman, and then he set them outside the garden, outside the place of blessing. And he put an angel with a flaming sword to, to stand guard at the entrance to the garden. And God said to our first parents, go. He said, go, depart from me. You cannot be in my presence because of your sin. But what we see God saying when he says, come, he is inviting us through grace. He has made provision for our sin so that he might welcome us back to him. We should not be able to approach God. We should not be able to come to him because we're sinners who rebel against him. But in his mercy and in his grace, he's made provision for our sin. This invitation, it has, it's freely offered to us, but we need to see the costly sacrifice that stands behind it. It's free to you, but it was costly to Jesus. As New Testament Christians, we read the story of redemption into this invitation, and we see that he's saying, you come by the blood of Jesus Christ into the presence of God. That offer goes out to you freely. But it came at a high cost to obtain. My children are nine and seven. There's four of them in there. I'll explain that to you later if you have questions about it. Um, and they're starting to get into money. Money's becoming a thing that they're now aware of. They're aware that things cost money. They're aware that they can do chores and earn money. Reagan's like always making stuff and trying to sell it to me. I'm like, I'm like no, I'm not buying that. Go sell it to Titus. He'll buy it. He's an easy mark. Uh, but there's, they're starting to get this idea that, that money can buy you stuff. And so they're, they're, they're always asking, like, well, what does this cost? Well, what does that cost? Well, how much is this? And so we take them to a place like, you've seen Cascades Park. Cascades Park is this beautiful thing. Tallahassee, I grew up here. We didn't have cool stuff like that when I was a kid. What a great thing that our kids get to enjoy. And to our kids, they're like, this is free. We don't have to pay. We get, the, we get to go on the splash pad. We get to run on the trails. We get to enjoy the green space. And it's free. And, and we say, well, yeah, it is free. But it's costly at the same time. It cost the city like $25 million to build that park. It's free, but it's, it's costly in, in a small way. That, that illustrates the grace of the gospel that's held out to us in this invitation. When God says, come, he says, you come freely to me. But you remember, remember the, the cost. The cost was the blood of my son. I want you to notice as well, this, this invitation, it's not a personal invitation. It's not come, hey, you, and you come and sing to the Lord. You come commune with God. It's, it's us. It's plural. This is not a personalized or privatized invitation. This is an invitation that goes out to the whole congregation to gather as God's people to worship him. And we need to understand this. When you read the Bible, you've got to look for those plural ideas because our default setting in interpreting the Scriptures is to privatize it and to read it as this is just Jesus and me. And most of the Bible is not set up that way. Most of the Bible is, this is what the church does. The community of faith comes together. Christianity in the New Testament is inescapably corporate. 
And so I just want to ask you, I want to encourage you. This is just a very simple point of application here. Are we prioritizing our response to this invitation? God says, come, come into my presence. Do we treat that lightly? Are we prioritizing gathering with God's people on the Lord's day where where God holds out his grace to us in Jesus Christ? Here, where we come together, we sing together, we take the Lord's Supper together, we send it to preaching together. It is a gracious invitation from God. Let me just encourage you, prioritize being here on Sundays. Gather with God's people. Be ready when the worship leader speaks the call to worship over you. Hear Jesus Christ behind that, inviting you, saying, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I have rest for your soul here. Here with God's people. Prioritize the gathering, not because you should, because you get to. You get to. That's our privilege as God's people, to come to him. So the first instruction, come into his presence. What do we do once we get here? This is, again, this is easy. Sing to him with your voice. Let's read one and two again. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. I'm not, I'm not going to belabor this. I'm just going to let the text speak for itself. We are called to come into God's presence with singing. Maybe you didn't feel like that was super explicit. Let me read you one other text. Psalm 47, 6. Sing praises to our God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. The Bible is explicit. We are called, invited, and commanded to sing to God. That's part of the identity that we get when we come to Jesus Christ. We are singers. We're a part of that chorus that testifies to his greatness in song. And you might say, well, I don't, I, I've got a terrible voice. That can't include me. Yeah, it includes you too. Can I tell you something? Your trash singing voice, God loves it. He's crazy about it. He loves it like a parent loves their kid's art. You know what I'm saying? Like like the kid art, you know the kid art I'm talking about? It's like, oh, this is uh, a dog? And they're like, no, it's, you know, it's our family. Like, why? (laughs) But I love it. Like, let's tack it on the wall. Awesome. It's great. God feels the same way about our weak and flailing and frail efforts to praise him. He delights in us. And here's the thing. When we truly understand what God's done for us in Christ, when we behold the greatness and the loving kindness of God, it inevitably wells up in our hearts in song. We have a quote on the wall in the green room that the worship team walks by every time before we come out. It's from Charles Spurgeon. It just says, A rejoicing heart soon makes a praising tongue. Those things will always go together. God may have given you a terrible voice, but he gave you a wonderful song. The song of the redeemed that he's placed in your heart. And so the invitation to you in this text is to let it fly. Sing loud. It's all good. Nobody's, we're not going to give you a microphone if you've got a bad voice. That's fine. We don't have to do that. But God delights to hear the praises of his people. I love the way John Wesley put this in his uh, directions for singing that he published years ago. Wesley was pretty direct. He said, Sing all. See that you join with the congregation as frequently as you can. Let not a single degree of weakness or weariness hinder you. If it is a cross to you, take it up, and you will find a blessing. And I love this part. Sing lustily and with good courage. 
Beware of singing as if you were half dead or half asleep, but lift up your voice with strength. I think this is an area where God's really met us as a church. I really enjoy getting to sit up front and hearing the voices coming from behind me, but my hope is that we would grow in this even more, that we would excel in this, that our church would be known as, man, when you go to one of their gatherings, those people are singing. Let me say this too, just just to the dads. If you're a father and you have kids, they need to see and hear you singing to God. My dad is a wonderful, wonderful Christian man. He did a wonderful job uh, communicating the gospel and the word of God to me. One of my very favorite things about him, and I said this in the first service and he was here, I loved seeing my dad sing in church when I was a kid. He has a terrible singing voice, okay? And he would tell you that. And if you've ever sat next to him at church, you know. It's not great. But the Lord loves it, right? God loves it. And I loved it too as his son. Because it demonstrated to me that this, was, this wasn't, we weren't playing games here. This is the real deal for my dad. He loves the Lord. And it came through when it was time to sing. So dads, model that for your children. Give that gift to your kids. So we're called to come into his presence and we're called to sing to him with our voices. But why do we do that? What's our motivation for it? What's the reason that we do it? One of my favorite things about the scriptures is that it never calls us to do anything without telling us the reason why we're supposed to do it. God doesn't call you anywhere to just blind faith or blind obedience to what he calls you to do. There's a reason for it. Look down at verse 3. We make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise for the Lord is a great God. For, because. John Piper says that word for is the fiery logic of heaven on display. The reason that we sing to him is because of the supremacy of who he is. The supremacy of God is the ground of our joy and our delight in him. We sing to him because he's a great God. Verses 3 through 5 is almost like a little uh, psalm within the psalm. He's a great God. He's a great king above all gods. Now, is Scripture teaching here that there are other gods and gods like the number one God? No, that's not what it's saying. He's using, uh, it's called mythopoeic imagery. He's taking the mythology of that day that's sort of understood among peoples, and he's twisting it to demonstrate his point about who God is. He's saying all the other nations have all their gods. Well, guess who reigns supreme over all those gods? Yahweh does. He is exalted far above all gods. He is the supreme being in all the universe. He goes on to illustrate this in 4 and 5. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains. You go to the lowest place you can imagine, God is there ruling and reigning sovereignly. He made it, and he's in charge of it. You go to the highest mountain you can find, God is there. He made it. He's ruling and reigning sovereignly over it. He has authority over all creation, the land and sea. It's all his. He made it all. He has absolute authority over everything in creation. But he goes on. What else did God make? Verse 6, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He didn't just make the world. He made, he made you and he made me. Not only did he make us, verse 7, we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He's not just the sovereign creator and ruler. He's the personal maker and shepherd of his people. You know, the, uh, the children's catechism, I don't know if any of you have ever used this with your kids. It's, um, 
It's a, it's a paraphrased and sort of little kid level uh, version of the, of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's really, it's really beautiful, uh, and I'd, I'd recommend if you're looking for something to train and teach your kids with. But one of the questions in it says, why should you glorify God? And the answer is, because he made me and he takes care of me. I know that, that's, that's phrased for a child, but doesn't that just well up worship in your heart? He made you and he takes care of you. And that comes from these verses. It's right here in the text. So we come to him and we sing to him because we know him with our minds. And we, it's very important that we, that we know who he is when we come to worship him because we need the truth. We must know God for who he is in order to worship and obey him rightly. You know, there's a preponderance in our day of people who will say things like, well, I like to think of God as X. And I know that's what the Bible says or what the church has taught historically, but I, I really prefer to think of God as being this way. And usually what follows behind that is something that has like a little bit of truth in it from the scriptures, but then sets aside a whole bunch of other stuff that we don't like that the Bible teaches. And we have to be really careful about that because we don't get to fashion God in our own image. We have to worship him for who he is. If we're seeking to make God in our own image and we say, well, I I just believe in a God that's like this or like that, but it's not based in his word, then we're really no different than the basketball player who recently said that he's pretty sure the earth is flat. It's kind of a funny thing. I mean, we've got like the pictures from space, you know. It's round. Or I I just saw recently that Charlie Sheen thinks the moon is hollow. Like, that's such a weird thing to think. Like, why would you base that on? But sometimes that's the same sort of thinking that we bring to our assessment of who God is and what he's like. And we can't do that. We take God at his word. We, we come under the authority of his truth. We need to know him for who he is. And we come to worship to be reminded of who he is. And here's how these work together. The character of our worship is always shaped by what we know about God. But what we know about God is also always shaped by our worship. That's why we always want the Word of God to be central in our worship gatherings here at Four Oaks. Not just in our time of preaching, but also in our worship. Those things work together. So we come into His presence. We sing to Him with our voices. We know Him with our minds. And we also treasure Him with our hearts. Fourth, we treasure Him with our hearts. Look at verse 6. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. There's that O come, there's that command again. And what are we commanded to do? Worship, bow down, and kneel. In the original language, these three verbs really, they just mean the same thing. They're just different ways of saying the same thing. They're saying, bow down, bow down, bow down. But when you see repetition in the, in the, in the Bible, what's it, what's it saying? It's, it's amplifying what it's communicating. So you can almost read it this way. Bow down. No, no, get lower. No, no, even lower. Get even lower because you see and you've experienced and God's revealed to you how majestic and glorious and holy and other and set apart he actually is. Esteem him for who he is and get on your face before him. He's not some tribal God 
that you get to fashion in your own image. He is the sovereign creator of the universe. And he is also your covenant God. And so worship him. Enthrone him in the highest places in your heart. That's what worship is. Worship, that word actually comes from an Old English word that just means, uh, the Old English word is like worship. It's assigning worth. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something or someone in a way that engages our whole person. It engages our thoughts, our affections, and our will. That's what worship is. Worship is what happens when we look at something and we ascribe ultimate value to it. And we say, that's the thing that I need most in the world. That's the thing that I love the most in the world. And here's the thing you got to understand. We say this a lot here at Four Oaks. Worship is not something Christians do. Worship is something people do. Everyone worships something because there is something in every human heart that occupies that highest seat in the affections. Everyone has something they treasure and love the most. And what what God is saying here is, God is the only one who can rightfully sit in that place in your heart. He's the only one. You know, some Christians are scared of Harry Potter. I'm not one of them. I think it's great. In the first book, Harry goes into a, a room he's not supposed to go into, and he finds what's called the Mirror of Erised. And Erised, it's a, it's a children's book, so the cookies are kind of on the bottom shelf. Erised is desire spelled backwards. And he looks into this mirror, and instead of seeing his reflection, he sees him, and standing around him are his parents and his extended family, because Harry's parents died when he was a baby. And his mentor, Dumbledore, explains to him that when you look into this mirror, you don't see your reflection. You see the most desperate desire of your heart. And everyone who looks into it sees something different, because everyone has something that they long for and desire the most. And that's the thing that you worship. And here's the thing. Because we are idolaters, because our desires are broken and corrupted by sin, we desire the wrong things. We desire stuff and achievement and approval and sex and relationships with people. These are the things that we desire because of the brokenness of our hearts. And ultimately, if anything other than God, anything other than the God who made us for himself is in that place, is uppermost in our affections, it will enslave and destroy us. I want you to hear what David Foster Wallace said about this. In his commencement speech at Kenyon College, he said this. He is not a Christian. But listen to these words. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your own intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. 
David Foster Wallace is not a Christian, but in saying that, he is so painfully close to the kingdom. He is so close. If you are drawing breath right now, someone or something is on the throne in your heart. Someone or something is uppermost in your affections. And the invitation of this psalm is that only God belongs there. Only He belongs in that place. Only He has the rightful claim to that place in your heart. And so for a Christian, every act of worship, every time we gather as God's people, every time we confess our sins and sing songs of praise to God, we are actually renouncing the false gods that are trying to take over our hearts. We're renouncing and and putting them down. That's why it's so critical that we come and sing and know and treasure. Listen to what John Whitbleet says about this. He says, every time we sing praise to the triune God, we are asserting our opposition to anything that would attempt to stand in God's place. Every hymn of praise is a little anti-idolatry campaign. I love that. When we sing praise God from whom all blessings flow, we are also saying down with the gods from whom no blessings flow. That's what we do when we come into this place. Worship is a war for supremacy in our hearts. And when we worship as God's people, he, he does a work. He heals us. He transforms us. He restores by degrees our love and our affection for Jesus as the Spirit works in our hearts. And there's a real sense of urgency for us to see this happen in our hearts. That's what, that's what he's getting at at the end of this text and this warning that begins at the end of verse 7. He calls upon Israel's history as a witness against God's people as a warning to us. If you don't know the history, this is referring to the period of the Exodus. Israel was in captivity for 430 years in Egypt where they were oppressed, degraded, and under the thumb of a wicked king and a wicked people. And in the midst of their oppression, in the midst of their suffering, they called out to God, and God heard their prayers, and he sent Moses and Aaron to come and stand before Pharaoh, and eventually God's people were delivered from captivity in Egypt, and Moses led them out, and he took them on a journey from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. But before they were going to get to Canaan, they had to go through the wilderness, and the wilderness days were very difficult, and that's where things began to go wrong. The people of God forgot the deliverance that God had brought about for them, and they began to rebel against him. They say terrible things to Moses as he's leading them through the desert. They say things like, is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to die? Things were bad in Egypt, but at least we had leeks and potted meat to eat. Now all we have is this manna from heaven. Who wants that? Think about how much gluten there is in that, Moses. What's the deal? I'm so glad church folk... We don't complain like this anymore. Amen? Glad we got that figured out. (laughs) He brings up Meribah and Masa. These are instances that stand as, as signposts for the rebellion of God's people in Israel against Moses and against God. And as a result of their rebellion against him, their their hearts became discontent, and in their ingratitude, they forgot God's deliverance, and they accused God of being asleep at the switch or being an incompetent ruler of the universe. And this is what we do when we complain against God. 
We would never say it like this, but what we're saying when we complain against God and his ways is, God, if I were in charge, this would be going a lot better. I don't know what the matter with you is. You should give me a chance at the wheel. You should throw me the keys to the universe for a little while. I'll show you how this thing's done. As a result of their rebellion, neither that generation of the children of Israel nor Moses entered the promised land because they did not listen to the voice of God. Now, there's something that's a little interesting about this text that we need to think about. Israel had to spend 40 years in the wilderness, but then at the end of 40 years, Joshua led them into the promised land, didn't he? So if Joshua ended up leading them into the promised land, why is the psalmist who's writing centuries later, why is he warning about missing out on the rest? Why is he warning them about missing out on the promises of God? Well, in order to get the answer to that question, we want to turn now to the authoritative interpretation of Psalm 95 that we see in Hebrews 3 and 4. I want to read this, this whole section of Hebrews 3 and 4 is, is a commentary on this section of Psalms. I just want to read a couple of verses for you. This is Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. This is him commenting on Psalm 95, which is commenting on the Exodus. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. The promise of God, this promised land, it was never about Canaan. It was always about Christ. Canaan is the shadow. Christ is the substance. And he's saying, today, if you hear his voice, his voice is the voice of the gospel. If you hear his voice, respond with faith. Rest from your work. Stop trying to earn your salvation. Stop trying to justify yourself by your good deeds. Entrust yourself fully to the blood of Jesus Christ that shed for your sin. Come to Jesus. Get off the treadmill of performance and rest in him. Believe in the gospel. Trust him. Jesus Christ is the deeper spiritual rest that God has provided for his people. Here's what you need to understand. There is no person who has believed in Jesus Christ who will be kept out of the rest of God, who will be kept out of heaven because of their weakness. There is no Christian who will be denied heaven, who will come to heaven and see a shut door because he has ongoing struggles with sin. Your struggles with pornography will not keep you out of heaven. The brokenness of your marriage will not keep you out of heaven. And in the same way, a person who does not believe in Jesus Christ, but who is a model citizen, who's generous, who loves his neighbor, who serves people selflessly, not a single one of them will enter the kingdom of God. Not a single one of them will get this rest because the only thing that keeps you from obtaining the rest that's promised in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews 4 is unbelief. And the call goes out to us today. Trust in Him today if you hear His voice. Don't Harden your heart. Repent of your sin and entrust yourself to the righteousness of Christ that can be credited to your account by faith.
We don't look to our own works. We look to the finished work of Jesus and we rest in them. Because here's the thing. In the wilderness, Israel failed the test. But there's another who went out into the wilderness and it was Jesus. After he fasted for 40 days, he went out into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. And Satan said, Jesus, I know you're tired. I know you're hungry. I know you're thirsty. I know you're depressed. So here's all the food and water you could want. Here's all the power and authority you could want. Just renounce your trust in your father. And Jesus said, I want none of that. I'd rather have the father. I'd rather have his presence. I'd rather have relationship with him. It's more important to me than any of those things. And where Israel failed the test and where you and I have failed the test over and over again, Jesus passed the test. And if you hear his voice and entrust yourself to him, his righteousness is credited as though it were yours. How good is that? How good is God that he's provided a rest for us? So how do we get that message down into our hearts? How do we get it to to shape our understanding? How do we experience the rest that's available to us today that looks ahead to that rest on the last day? How do we do it? We worship. We let the worship of God form and shape our hearts. We come to him. We sing to him. We know him and we treasure him. And we respond to his invitation today. Would you pray with me?